Welcome to the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Caitlin Bigsby of Azir. Caitlin, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing real well. Now, you're up in Vancouver, right? I am. All right. Well, thanks for joining me today. And if you would, for our listeners, share a little bit about yourself and what you do there at Vizier. Sure. So Vizier, I'm a director of product marketing for Vizier People. I've been here for a couple of years now. Prior to that, I've been a consultant, implementation consultant, consulting manager. So I've been work, working on the front lines of people in HR for a really, really long time. Finally transitioned over to the, the dark side in marketing a couple of years ago. <laughs> Well, you do great at it because you have that background, I, I yeah. must say, in a very unbiased way. Uh, <laughs> and one of the things that you have done over the years, again, given your background, is talk about this idea of agility at different mm-hmm. levels, organizational agility. And obviously, given COVID-19 and the crisis that we're in the midst of, the need to be agile is critical. Can you speak to some of your thoughts and ideas on that? Yeah, well, I think what we all realize the change, it seemed to all hit us like a ton of bricks. There's, you know, before and after. I I remember the March 9th and 10th, I was in New York giving a speech. By March 12th, I was working at home because our offices had shut down. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's how quickly it seemed to happen. So, you know, HR directors, people we were, our customers were finding, they had to get data in front of their leadership immediately. Immediately, people needed to know where people were, what they were doing, you know, bring people on business trips, bring them home, all that stuff, just immediately, that kind of thing. So that's what the agility meant for people who had been like, you know, producing monthly reports that took days and weeks to put together, weren't able to respond to that kind of immediacy. And it, it was very stressful. Yeah, and this was not only a need to write the business, it was a need to understand how people were thinking and feeling and where they were, mm-hmm. you know, to, the, yeah. the, the worker perspective. Is that right? Yeah, literally where people were, right? where they, you know, being caught on trips, bring them home, where they're, where they are working. Are they capable of working at home? Do they have what they need to work at home and making those decisions really fast? It just moved with lightning speed. Yeah. And so, you know, as we're talking about this notion of agility, I want to cut fast forward real quick. I mean, there's been so much discussion around the here and now and creating dashboards and absolutely get it. As we, you know, here we are in late April going into May and summer, you know, where do you see HR leaders getting traction to drive the approach to not only workforce strategy, but you know, really business strategy? Because I know you, you know, Vizier is not just about workforce. You can aggregate and analyze other data that shares mm-hmm. what the operation looks like. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we are an aggregator for that. We bring in data, all your people data, but also your business data. So, you know, sales results, productivity, individual productivity, network connections, customer success. So all those things come together. And I think what that's going to mean, you know, as, as organizations we start talking, there's going to be three major movements and some of them that can be occurring all at once at an organization. There's going to be a shift of talent. There's going to be increase in talent, depending on, on what you're in, you might need to scale up and there's going to be a reduction in talent. So it can be a combination of all of those three. So what we see that requiring from the HR leadership is, you know, if you're a business that maybe one side of your business is coming down and another side of your business is coming up, you're not just going to lay off people on the side of the business that's coming down and then hire brand new people on the side that's coming up, at least we, you know, that would not be advisable. The HR leadership should be doing is looking at the, the one side of the business that's scaling down to see who can be moved to the side that's scaling up. 
So that's cut. That's where the shift is kind of coming into play. So there's going to be an incredible need for this assessment of what people can do, what their capabilities are. You're going to be looking for people, even if maybe they don't have any of the skill background that you need, they've got you know, good performance reviews, they get along, you know, they're really well connected with other people. They show that sort of degree of resiliency that you want to be able to bring over to another side. So there's going to be a real sort of broad scale assessment of the team so that the leadership can make those kind of decisions about who goes where in, out, or over. You know, with what you're saying is predicated, correct me if I'm wrong, on data. So many organizations don't have the data, so they have to create it because, mm-hmm. you know, gosh, if, if I'm going to, if this is going to be important, then you know, how do I get it? So that's a question. If I have it, there's an underlying assumption historically that, okay, I have it, I must be able to access it and use it, particularly relative mm-hmm. to other data, but that's not a turnkey you know, concept. You need something to make that happen. Is that yeah. you know, what you're seeing? And that's quarter your value yeah. proposition, yeah? Yeah, that's it. I mean, busier customers were, were able to do this kind of work immediately. They were, I mean, we, we have one organization in food services. So on the one hand, they face this exact scenario. On the one hand, their service supplying schools closed completely. On mm-hmm. the other hand, food delivery and, and maintenance has gone up. So that ability to move people around, look at, at what was happening in different regions and adapt accordingly was necessary, but they were able to do it because they had all the data in place. What we don't want to do is make, make you think like, oh, well, you know, I'm out of luck because it's not, that's not true. There's always time. And actually, for some of us, we, we have a lot of time right now. So if you're looking to keep some of your people busy and they're not hiring or onboarding people, get them cleaning up your data or starting to think about it. But you can do an awful lot with very little. We hear from people all the time is that, well, you know, I, I don't have a lot of data. I don't track a lot of data. But, you know, if you have, we call it the tombstone data, you know, your start date, your end date, your first name, your last name, your birth date, your gender, maybe <laughs> your location. That's a ton of data right there that you yeah. can work with. You can, at the very least, you know, as the economy starts to open up again, regionally or, or small changes, you can at least look at who's where and who can, who can respond, what their, their risk factors might be. I mean, that's, that's actually a lot of insight at your fingertips. I spoke with your colleague there, Ian Cook, recently, and he and I were going back and forth around this idea that so many people have been sold on the concept that if you have a transactional system and you have the data, then it's just a matter of going in there and accessing it. But that's looking at a discrete view as opposed to what you're talking about, where you have a more broad, aggregated view where you can actually then start telling stories. Is if that is, I imagine you align with that. So Let's say your clients have adopted Vizier and they are using it in the way that you are talking about. What is the downstream change that is happening? Because it's kind of like the last mile, right? We create these insights, but if they're not actually driving meaningful change in a Mm -hmm. process, then it's arguably all for naught, or at least it's of marginal return. So of those companies that you work with that are facilitating change well and responding to this crisis well. What are some of the tidbits that you're seeing, the commonalities? The commonalities, I mean, I think 201, I mean, the first thing is the biggest change, and I don't think this is a, I don't want to say it's a process change because I don't think anybody ever writes down, we are going to spend half the meeting arguing about the numbers. That's not a part of anybody's process, but in <laughs> fact, that is what happens. So the biggest change they have had driven and had already driven before they got to this point was the fact that now, when their leadership team sat down to look at their, their information, people already were, were primed to believe it. 
they knew the numbers to be true. And, and that really, really helped. So that's probably the biggest one. But I think some of the other things we've had people say, just, just being able to look across 100,000 employees over 120 locations and you know, get, get a sense of what the workforce costs were in each location, who could be moved and where, what was a change in process they were able to make. Another company, um, when they were faced with you know, who, to, who to furlough, who to reassign, could look at you know, the correlations between the, the people and their, their customer service scores. And so like, I mean, if you're going to be dealing with this crisis with a reduced staff, with an increasingly anxious team, then you're going to want to have people who are really good at it. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's frustrating for people. Another industry, you know, we have a lot of financial services, you know, they were able to simulate a lot of scenarios. You know, one of the other things that our solution does is we have what we call what if capabilities or projected capabilities and that we have built in some calculations based on numbers. So the first one will be if, you know, if you change nothing, the future will look like this, but then we allow you to input your own decision. So an example of this would be if you just allowed for natural attrition and changed nothing, your, your head count will be this. And your, your workforce cost is going to be this. But if you were to furlough a group of people, your cost is going to be adjusted like this. But by the way, we're also tracking productivity. And you know we, we project productivity to be this that's unchanged. And now you've affected it this way. So sort of allowing people to make the, the right kind of decisions. So given, just to summarize what I'm, I'm hearing is that those companies, those organizations that you're working with are that are able to affect change, probably prior to this crisis, have built a level of trust. So now they're going into the meetings, they're not arguing about the quality of the data, they're saying, okay, this is what we have. And in turn, you're enabling scenarios. So these what if analyses, so they can then leaders that is or, or governing bodies can have some options on how best to move forward. It might be supported by a recommendation or two from a people mm-hmm. analytics leader and a CHRO or whomever, but there can be this you know, different level of you know what if analysis. Is yeah. that as a percentage you know, basis, and again, I don't say this from a critical place, I say this from a compassionate place, because even with the companies that I work with, there's still a lot of runway in terms of the impact and effectiveness that we can have. That said, you know, COVID-19 has arguably accelerated the people on function down the runway to do more frequent and more effective scenario planning, to, to use the example that you just talked about. Is that what you're seeing as well And any other kind of coaching or advice that you'd give to bring that to life? Yeah, I mean, so we, de- we definitely are seeing our, the analytics team members being front and center. They're the people called on. In fact, you know, we, we keep talking like, you know, which of our customers can we talk to? It was like, they're so busy. They're just hmm. so busy because they're, they're trying to keep up with demand. My advice, I mean, if you, know, if you don't feel like in a position to do this is what I think the biggest outcome of all, it's like, we really don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what, when recovery was going to come. We don't know when the economy will open up. We don't know what that will look like. We know very little. And there's no guidebook. I mean, the last time we had a pandemic like this was 1918 and just a very different world. So what that means is I, th- I think the role of the, the analytics person now is to, to start doing some investigation, you know, learn about your people, learn about the different groups, you know, back to resiliency and, and flexibility, and to, which I think is what we're going to need more than anything. Can you bring the data sources together to start to identify those kind of people? Who are your resilient workers? Who are your, gosh, somebody used a term for it. I don't remember what it is, but you know, there's people who, whenever there's a learning opportunity, take advantage of it, who are always looking for stretch projects, the people who want to try 
try to, to identify that kind of people who are, what are the roles that are, are absolutely mission critical? And maybe, you know, that kind of tiering, like first level, keep the lights on, second level, start to, to ramp up, third level, start to expand, that kind of triaging. But that, all of that takes a certain amount of investigation to kind of get a sense. I mean, you just have to sift through a few different scenarios to start just before you start to see the patterns. And, you know, the temptation is always, I start with the generations. People like to look at the generations. Does your generation data tell you anything? What are you seeing there? I think if you have the opportunity to do anything new, if you're already doing a lot of analytics, but not everything, I, I say next, maybe you look at your network analysis. I mean, more than anything, uh, with everybody working at home, who is connected and how, we'll give you some really good information. If you don't, certainly not too late to get started with some help. One of the things we're offering, basically at cost, the cost of the services is, is a COVID-19 rapid assessment. So we'll onboard key data. We have already brought in a bunch of publicly facing data, such as where cases are and a variety of other health data. So we'll bring that in together for you. And then our own people analytics experts in-house will will assess it and walk you through it. So if you don't even know where to start and, and you're just like, ah, we've got a solution for you that's, that is incredibly, incredibly accessible, uh, accessible price. Yeah. Given what you're sharing, and again, I think it's an underappreciated theme in the people in space, particularly among those who did not grow up in the space, you know, CHROs mm-hmm. and people outside of the HR function. And I say this compassionately. It's not, again, a, a criticism. It's just the fact that because you have data, it doesn't mean it's going to get structured and the ability to analyze it is going to be there. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a leading question. You mentioned the, the COVID-19 data. It's an external data source. Yeah. You are able to, in effect, curate that and stage it next to internal employee data, which then mm-hmm. enables a story to be told. So mm-hmm. to do that, as someone who's inside an organization, they would have to locate the data source, they would have to clean the data source, they'd have to stage it, they'd have to do a number of things that, in this case, you all do. Is that right? Yeah, there's a lot of mapping and normalizing that goes on. I mean, when we first launched our solution, so we had two solutions. We have this solution I just told you about that that's for people who aren't currently busier customers. We've also been extending our busier people product for our customers so that they could immediately unlock it and access it. When we first expanded it, and we were bringing in just John Hobbs, Hobbs, Hopkins. <laughs> Hopkins data. Hopkins, yeah. thank yeah. you. But we've actually expanded that to four different data sources. So what that means, if you're familiar with, for those who aren't familiar with data, is that you know, we had to, four different sources means four different ways of reporting. So we had to normalize that. Then we had to map it to the data model that we currently have that our customers use so that they can leverage it. We're bringing in county level data. Now, most people don't track county for their employees. It's not usually something that, that you'll find on the, the address. So we had, we created a tool that allow us to inf, you know, infer county by employee. Why we were able to do that, and you know, one of the themes, actually the theme of my talks is we call it agility at scale. And we were mm-hmm. able to, this is, this is a perfect example of it. We built a pre-modeled data source. So at the core of it, we have a blueprint. We have essentially placeholders for everything. So I usually liken it to one of those giant U storage units where there's a, a storage unit for everything, you know, first name, last name, address, job. And then our employees or our customers, pardon me, move, move in their data. It does mean that we can, we can add on more storage units. We can bifurcate storage units. We can have somebody going through and, you know, create tunnels between the units, you know, everything. We maintain it. We have the connection. So it does allow us to extend it quite naturally and quite quite easily. We've we've done it in the past for when there were minimum wage changes, when they were introducing the CEO pay ratio. Very very small examples. This is the most ambitious 
extension we've ever done in, in a short period of time. We've already done two releases, but that's what it, what allows us to do it. Yeah, you just touched on this notion of agility at scale. We talked about it at at the outset, and if we can just go, you know, a bit deeper, because as we go into the future, you talked about you know different scenarios, you know, increasing here and decreasing the workforce here, and so that dynamic was already at play. Correct me if I'm wrong in your experience, you know, prior to this yeah. event, and now it's becoming even more acute. As we go into whatever the new normal is going to be, it's I'm thinking that it, it's not going to go away, that these no. trade-offs are always going to be a part. And they've historically, arguably, have been a part. They just have not been able to be seen because the data wasn't there, the technologies to enable these different scenarios uh, mm-hmm. weren't there. However, they are here now, and yeah. you know, there's almost an argument to be made that if you don't have a tool like this, how are you, you know, designing the yes. workforce of the future? And there's almost a level of irresponsibility by not having something like that. So that's quite an assertion. But you know, again, going back to this agility at scale, do you see this part of a new normal? This managing the amoeba, as I've talked about it in the past? 100%. I I think people who don't lean into the unknown, who can't comfortably say, you know what, I don't know what's going to come next, Mm -hmm. but I'll do my best to figure something out. They're going to flow because you've got that on the one hand. On the other hand, you have people like, well, my gut says, like, how Mm -hmm. on earth does your gut know? Your gut didn't know. It didn't know, honestly, last year either. But it knows even less now because right. we, you know, in my experience, in your experience, what? Were you, are you, know, are you 120 years old and this is your <laughs> second experience? With, no. So, yeah. So I, I think that that 100% that you have a responsibility to explore. And when, when we talk agility at scale, we actually mean two things by this because often... We, Vizier was early on the market with a pre-built solution, but th- then there are others others now. But usually, the, so the, the market is often divided into we'll build it ourselves, or we'll buy it, or we'll rent it. In our case, because we're SaaS, we don't think actually there's a choice to be made there because but, you know building it yourself means that you know you get exactly what you need. You get custom bespoke analytics, and there is a hundred percent a need for that. That's not going away. I mean, you are an organization is an organization. You've got your unique data, your unique data points. We don't pretend that we can do that for you, but what we can do is the agility at scale, which is 80, 80% of what you need to explore, like I said, that basic demographic data, where, you know, where are people, what jobs are they, let's connect their performance scores to their output and their productivity. We can do that. Then when you get to the end of your exploration and you've discovered there's just one more thing you need to know, then you can take out the data and massage it and, and manipulate it and do your bespoke. So that gets you the agility, but at scale, that lets you perform far higher degrees of analytics as you're not in the weeds, especially right now in the weeds. What's our mm-hmm. latest headcount? What's our latest this? What's our latest this? You'll never get anywhere. I mean, there's like 10 different directions I want to take that, but I, I want to <laughs> go back to something that we had talked about prior to our start. Employee experience. So mm-hmm. as these decisions are made, there can be anxiety. Oh, gosh, you know, is my job going to change? How quickly is it going to change? Mm-hmm. You know, all this stuff. So, they're, you know, balancing kind of confidence and, and business continuity with, you know, having this agility at scale that you're talking about. And coming back to this design thinking, employee experience uh, notion that is really gained a lot of airplay and rightly so over the last you know four to five years it was around for a while but it's certainly mm-hmm. the past four or five years got a lot of attention it's been over there and people analytics yeah. has been over there yet mm-hmm. employee experience generates data it affects how people think and feel about their job so you know, what's your viewpoint regarding employee experience design thinking and what we do in analytics 
before everything happened, I was actually preparing some material. We were going to spend a lot of time in my role talking about employee experience. We probably still will. And I was researching and doing more research on design thinking. My background actually is, or my degree rather, is in, in psychology. And one of my favorite parts of psychology was always, how do you design, how do you design the experiment to figure things out? So as I was reading about design thinking, so much of what you read about design thinking is really like, let's let's do an experiment. But to do an experiment, we have to do research. We've got to figure out where we're going to go. You don't just, you don't pull it out of thin air. But it just really struck me that design thinking is, in my opinion, you really can't do effective design thinking change and approach employee experience without analytics. The first, because I mean, the very first step is segment your population. Without insight into your population, what do those segments look like? Again, the, the, the temptation is always, let's do it by generation. Well, how meaningful is that? You know, a lot of people are going to tell you you're going to be not all that meaningful. So you actually have to take a look. You know, take a look at what you currently have and start to see patterns. Maybe you'll see patterns, men and women of a certain, you know, be most likely to have young children at home. Maybe that's the segment of your population that, mm-hmm. that needs attention you, you, and you may not have occurred to you. So, I, I mean, I think they absolutely go hand in hand because you can't even know where to start until you have a lay of the land. And then once you try something based on what you've learned, then the data is what lets you see if you're actually on the right path or if you need to adjust. And, you know, there's just as much value to learning that you're failing or, or not making an impact as there is to realizing you're, you're being successful. Yeah, absolutely love it. And I, I think about Thomas Rasmussen, who is at NAB in Australia, former People Island leader at Shell, and he uh, successfully lobbied for and got employee experience together with people analytics mm. under his leadership. And Great. so my my point of question is, do you see that emerging, whether it be what you're seeing or what you hope will evolve? Do, do you see that emerging as a leading practice? Yeah, my in, in my best case scenario, my, my perfect world scenario, it would be in analytics, doing, like I said, the first thing, what trends do we see in our in our employee groups? How do what does that look like? We had one customer who was certain that there wasn't going to be the same uptake on their recognition software amongst the manufacturing staff. They just had assumed that manufacturing staff were different. In fact, they weren't. So I, yeah, I see it living there just to create the segments. I see them living there. The next step, of course, is, is to create a task force because I mean, to actually come up with the solutions of things to try, you're going to need a cross cross section. But I see them, the analytics team bringing forward that these are the patterns we're currently seeing. These are the segments. These are some of the challenges. These are things we need to address. What does this team think we should focus on and how? And I see them monitoring the results and, and feeding that information right back to, to the task force. So yeah, 100%, I see them leading it. Honestly, it's really the only way to do it, I think, successfully. If I'm listening and I'm CHRO or head of talent or head of talent acquisition or performance or learning or culture, I might be thinking, well, my solution does X, but it doesn't do Y and Z and M and OP. You know, it it doesn't do the whole employee experience. It doesn't capture that. Obviously, an employee experience or worker experience is cross-functional. It's over Mm -hmm. time. And historically... In my view, the process-centric suppliers, technologies, have led the narrative on, hey, fit into this box. And there's some agility, there's some options within that box, but you know, they're SaaS, you know, more often than not. And 
there's a value proposition, you know, to at sell at scale, right? So my point of question to you is, you know, there's always going to be a balance between a, what a technology can do and the data it's going to generate and what I, as a leader, want to create through this experience. And mm. can you, and ultimately, again, the data is going to get generated and the analytics are going to come out of the data, you know, that's generated. So I think we're saying the same thing insofar as we have to acknowledge the limitations of what exists now and employ mm-hmm. you know design thinking and leave some room for mm-hmm. you know scenarios to to un- unfold is that what you would advocate because this whole notion that we're talking about i think if i'm listening go okay it makes sense but that is not happening very often. There's not a, an employee yeah. experience group that's cross-functional and, and all that no. more often than not. No, I think I think what we saw happen was some very clever marketers decided to argue for the fact that being able to request my time off through a snazzy U, new UI was going to make my employee experience so much better. And so somehow, you, like you said, they, these transaction-based systems kind of seized on the, the employee, the employee experience is, is technical and, and the employee experience is not technical. It's certainly part of my job, but even then it's a broader conversation. You know, my, for me as a personal employee, like the tools I need to do my job with give me some satisfaction or, or conversely can make me absolutely enraged if I'm, (laughs) you know, something that that's frustrating and that does impact my employee experience for sure. But my employee experience is, you know, do I, do I trust my colleagues? Do I feel connected to my colleagues? Do Mm -hmm. I feel that my work is meaningful and productive? And yeah, that's, that's not fixed by a solution and it's not measured by a solution. So number one, I think in the column, if you are going to buy a solution to help you investigate this, then a sentiment pulse tool, network connectivity, organizational network analysis kind of thing that 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 can help you measure it it's not going to help you fix it it'll help you measure it but let's let's use a scenario as an example let's uh, in onboarding mm-hmm. most organizations you see the most the highest turnover during your first year you know it's expensive to hire people it's lost you know lost time lost productivity so most people want to create an onboarding experience that's going to make somebody happy and make them productive you're again, you're not going to fix that with an onboarding tool. There is no one tool that will make this work. You're not going to measure it that way. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't think about it that way. And if a person's on an employee or experience as they onboard is, you know, what was my first day like? Was my manager responsive? Did they make me feel welcome? Was I introduced to my colleagues and connected to my colleagues? Did I, yes, did I get my equipment from IT in a timely fashion? Did I get the training I needed to feel productive right away? Was my job explained to me properly? There are a number of different elements that go into that onboarding experience. You can, technology is what can help you deliver the training. It can help you make sure that your, you know, people are set up and then, you know, their HR system can make sure that they're, you know, they anticipate the new hire, but it's a much bigger picture than, than that. And at the end of it, you're going to be able to, the very, the first thing you can measure at the end of it, if you can measure nothing else is before and after my new onboarding process, did our retention rate in the first year go up or go down? You have nothing else to measure. I mean, that's your goal, isn't it? Is to reduce yeah. turnover in the first year. So did you achieve your goal? Then you can yeah, peel back the layers and look a little bit further. Like, does it sentiment analysis telling you anything? Do you see your new hires connected to more people more quickly? You know, you can start to peel back the layers that way. Yeah. As you're peeling back the layers, like you're, you're saying, you know, that is a level of deeper insight. Thus, the actions can be more pointed and detailed. In other mm. words, I think arguably we've been spreading the peanut butter and, and hoping a lot yeah, hoping. within <laughs> talent strategies. But moving yep. forward, 
you know, we can be really pointed to specific mm. uh, diversity groups, to specific you know, life stage groups, to you know, certain cohorts that, that come in the organization. So with that in, in mind, you know, where do you see, as we start to wrap up here, where do you see this discipline going? We talked about employee experience. We talked about you know, better improved change. You know, where do you see us going in six to 12 months given COVID-19? Okay, not to be self-serving, first of all, but I see us hitting pause on a lot of big transactional implementations, if it's all possible. And I see us taking a step back and, and researching, and hopefully I see us moving forward with that step of, of uh, where the self-serving part comes in of analytics and, and doing some lay of the land assessment. Don't just keep throwing money at things, hoping something will work. Take a step back, take a really good look at what's going on and what's what's working, and then slowly roll things out. Don't throw millions of dollars at a giant project in the hopes, you know, that people can see their pay stubs more easily. That's what I see. That's what I hope to see. I know usually coming out of crises like this, IT gets usually a big inject- injection of cash. And I hope that they're thoughtful with it. I hope that they realize that, you know, there's no one system that's going to fix things. You want the right solutions. And sometimes it'll be technical and sometimes it won't. Again, we're not only drinking the Kool-Aid, we're making the Kool-Aid. So, <laughs> you know, you know f- full disclosure, but we do so because we see the value and we want more yeah. people to see the value and in turn realize it. So now I applaud what you and the Vizier team not only have done during this crisis, but have done for years now in driving the thinking and obviously providing a solution to the market. So congratulations to you and your team and uh, you. keep up the yeah. awesome work. Great. Thanks, Al. Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.